We'll hear argument now on number 02964, George Baldwin versus Michael Reese. Uh, General Myers. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When a state uh, prisoner decides to attack his conviction on the basis of a claimed violation of federal constitutional right, your cases have held that he must first alert the state courts he is raising a federal claim if that claim is to be exhausted for federal habeas purposes. But what the prisoner must say to the state courts to tell them he is raising a federal claim continues to be a a troubled area of federal habeas law. It is one that has divided the circuits and is producing very different analyses and results. Some cases are holding that uh, the prisoner must make some explicit citation or reference to the federal source of his claim. Some cases are holding that a federal claim has been fairly presented even when, even though what the prisoner is saying to the state courts could as, as, as reasonably be interpreted as stating a state law claim. And some courts have held that a federal claim is fairly presented even when the statement of the claim is clearly a claim under state law only. This continuing, and in this, in this well, case. We're reviewing a Ninth Circuit holding, uh, which seems fairly open-ended. How would you characterize the Ninth Circuit rule? Your Honor, I was about to describe it as a transformation of the responsibility of the state prisoner to present his claim, a uh, transformation of that into a responsibility of the, of the state court, state courts to, in effect, step into the shoes of the state prisoner and complete or try to complete an incompletely presented claim. Uh, this, this overall division uh, among the circuits and this case from the Ninth Circuit, we think, Your Honors, uh, illustrates or confirms very strongly the need for further clarification by this Court as to exactly what must be said by. Well, do you agree with uh, your opponents here on at least some of the ground rules that would suffice? I mean, is it enough to cite a federal constitutional provision or a federal statute or other provision uh, describing the right as federal? You're well, both in agreement that would do. Yes, we believe that is so, so long as How about if you cite at least uh, a reported case that has decided the claim on a federal basis? You make your claim if, and cite a case that yes. uh, clearly has decided the claim on a federal basis. Is that, you're both in agreement that would do? Yes, Your Honor. And what if uh, a claim is spelled out that necessarily must be based on a federal right to exist at all? Yes, Your Honor, that is part of the test that we propose. Why, yes, I don't understand that. I mean, why is it necessarily a federal claim? It's necessarily a federal claim only if it's a valid claim. It might be an erroneous state claim. Well, we are referring to necessarily, uh, Your Honor, in the sense that the the source of the claim, that is, its federal source, well, is, but the, is unmistakable. He hasn't read the state constitution. He, he makes a due process claim. Now, you're, you're going to say, since there is no due process clause in the state constitution, but there is in the federal constitution, we must assume it's a federal claim. Why? It may be an erroneous state claim. Your Honor, we think that the state court — And I don't want to have to go through the trouble of figuring out whether there's a valid state claim. I mean, this is going to require a federal court, every time there's such a claim, to go through state law and determine whether there is anything to this under state law. Why why should we do that? Why — I mean, why aren't your first two requirements enough? Look at — cite a federal case. Cite a federal provision. Is, Is this an enormous burden? No, Your Honor, and we would be quite content. So why do you want to add anything to it? I, 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 don't, I don't really 
understand going beyond that. Let me ask you the other, the contrary question. Suppose the, the prisoner alleges, I had a lawyer who didn't even graduate from law school, and because I had such a lousy lawyer, I lost the case and I'm in jail, and I would be innocent if I were not in jail, but he doesn't cite any cases or any constitutional provision. Would that uh, present a federal claim? No, Your Honor. In as you much don't as think so. Not, not necessarily. Or if he added, and therefore it violated the federal constitution, then it would be a federal claim. Your Honor, it would. The federal source of the claim would have been identified. But of course, whatever further clarification uh, the court might consider adopting or adopt, the balance of the statement of the claim also has to meet the requirements of fair presentation. But why doesn't the state judge? No, he's raising a claim of inadequate assistance of counsel that violates the federal constitution. Doesn't that give the state judge a fair opportunity to decide the federal question? No, Your Honor, because the description of the claim that you just gave, apart from whether it's factually adequate or whatever, could as could equally address uh, or state a claim under state law. Well, but certainly, but the question knows. is whether it states a federal claim that has been exhausted. Doesn't it also state a federal claim? Not necessarily, Your Honor. I, th- I thought the uh, federal standards, and I was going to get into this, but let's do it in relation to Justice Stevens's hypothetical. I thought the federal standards and the state standards for uh, adequate assistance of counsel uh, were, were in substance the same and uh, in, you know, in Oregon. And, and if they are the same, why is it unfair to the state or to the state courts uh, to uh, construe a, a, uh, a, a statement like the one Justice Stevens just read as stating a federal as well as a state claim. The Court is going to do the same thing no matter how it construes it. Your Honor, when state judicial authority is invoked to address a claim before it, it's of paramount importance for that Court to know whether it is addressing a state mm-hmm. claim. Well, no, we, we need I, to lay down a rule, I think, that is, uh, can be applied generally and not ju- just to Oregon, so that of course, a peculiarity of Oregon law uh, ought not to control what we're trying to do in making a more general statement. No, Your Honor, well, and I would like may, to... Maybe I didn't make my, my point. My, my point was, if... A claim is stated, as a matter of fact, which under the law of the state and the law of the United States is governed by identical standards. What is unfair about construing that as a federal as well as a state claim, regardless of what label is put on it? And, Your Honor, as I was uh, uh, saying a few moments ago, it, the answer to that goes to the fact, or rests on the fact that the state court's authority to address a state law-based claim is very different, of course, from its authority to address a federal law-based claim. It has the ability to judge and decide the state law claim any way it, it thinks is correct under state law. It must, of course, in relation to a federal claim, follow the precedents uh, faithfully. No, but I, my, the, the, my, my question assumed that the, that the substantive law governing the claim was the same under, under the state system and under the federal system. So my assumption is uh, that you're going to get the same result, and the result is going to be equally right or equally wrong, regardless of, of, of whether you construe it as a state claim and a federal claim. But, Your Honor, the, the, the authority issue is crucial, because if the state court does not know whether it, in fact, has a state law claim before it, it does not know whether it has the prerogative in that case to change the rule. Suppose well, the Oregon had said in prior decisions, as states sometimes do in dealing with constitutional provisions, we interpret inadequate assistance of counsel in our state to be strictly in tune with the way the Supreme Court interprets inadequate or ineffective assistance of counsel. That is, our state standard is the same, identical to the federal. So there isn't any doubt about there being a difference between the state law and the federal law. The the state Supreme Court has said, we take our lead from the federal definition. 
Your Honor, I, I would still assert respectfully that the, the, the clarity with which the claim is presented in terms of making clear whether there is a state claim or a federal claim present is still of great importance because the state court can still change its decision with respect to the state claim. It's sure, claim. it can. But the question is, what does it know when it sets out to adjudicate the case? Is it fairly on notice at day one, on a premise like Justice Ginsburg's, that the claim is equally state or federal? And it seems to me that on a premise like hers, of course, the state can fairly say the law is the same. It uh, doesn't matter at this point whether, whether I call it state or whether I call it federal. So it's fair to assume it's both. If the state court, let's just say the, the state Supreme Court, uh, later on says, we think we'll change our rule, then all the state court has to do is to say the claim is either good or bad under federal law, and this cl- the result is now going to be different under state law. But the state courts at each stage, on a premise like Justice Ginsburg, is fairly on notice of what it has to decide. There's no unfairness to it. That's the point that we're getting at. And I, and I don't understand your answer when you say it's important for them to know the source if there's no unfairness. Well, Your Honor, with respect, we do think that there is unfairness if it is not absolutely and explicitly clear to the Court that a federal claim is being presented. You mean because it's just nice to know? No, because — It doesn't make any difference in the law. It doesn't make any difference in in the standards by which they would go about adjudicating it. Uh, But it could in the sense that they might want to change their position or interpretation with respect to — Yes, but that's a change in position to allow the claim. But we're only concerned with cases in which the state has denied relief. If if the state grants relief, there's no exhaustion problem. He got the relief. That's true, Your Honor. And so if he's denied relief without knowing whether it's federal or state, is there any possibility that if it were refiled, and clearly named federal constitution as the background, he would then grant relief. I'm not sure, Your Honor. I don't think so. I don't see how it could possibly happen. If the rules are the same, he made a conscientious examination of the claim and said, you lose. If he came back and added the words, uh, cited some federal case, he'd still lose. So why hasn't the state had a fair opportunity to consider that claim and the interests of federalism are not, why are they not accommodated by that? I just saying, if you if you made a claim that's clearly federal on its facts, and you've had a chance to decide it, why should that, that not count, uh, uh, be sufficient exhaustion? Well, because we think, at, again, Your Honor, we think not only do I still feel the authority issue very respectfully is important, but also our whole approach toward fair presentation of federal claims places a choice on the petitioner to make as to whether or not to assert a federal claim. General Myers, doesn't the burden on the habeas court have anything to do with this? If, if this hypothesis is adopted, the habeas court will have to, I suppose, consider the facts and determine whether that statement of facts makes out a federal claim or not. Thing one. Thing two, the federal habeas court will then have to examine state court, a state law, to assure itself that state law and federal law with regard to this matter are exactly the same. And all of this is in order to save the habeas petitioner what burden? The burden of saying federal claim when he files his his complaint. What Does it seem to you a close question who should bear that burden? No, Your Honor. How often are these habeas petitioners represented by counsel in Oregon? Is this, or is counsel regularly appointed for federal habeas petitioners? For federal habeas? uh, Yes, I believe, indigent federal habeas, yes, I believe so, Your Honor. Uh, In in the state courts? Oh, I'm sorry. In the federal court, you think they're routinely appointed by the state? No, a not federal habeas petitioner. In federal court, no, Your Honor, they they no. are. They it would, would be up they to were, the federal point rules. Would be federal, yes, but and what, they are. Must sorry. must the petitioner seeking habeas relief also fairly present 
the factual basis for the claim? Yes, Your Honor. Was that done here? Uh, no, Your Honor. And did the State uh, point that out below? No, Your Honor. Uh, in the in the habeas proceedings in the district court, we focused uh, solely on the issue of the adequacy of the, of the identification of the claim as federal in nature. Well, but if the yeah. petition contains no facts, you wouldn't point that out? I, I don't understand. Your Honor, Why wouldn't you say, but there are no facts? Your Honor, in this case, we made a choice to concentrate or focus on the issue of the, of the sufficiency of the, of the identification of the claim as federal. And we maintain that as the focus, and that was the, the focus of the petition. And you want us to decide this case on the assumption that facts were presented when indeed none were? In this case, yes, Your Honor, inasmuch as we have not appealed from, we have not made that an issue below and appealed from it. We have asked for review solely confined to the issue of the adequate, uh, the adequacy of the, or the sufficiency of the, of the identification of the claim as federal in nature. If may I, can, I, just, may I go back to make it clear where, where your, what your rule is. At the very outset, Justice O'Connor said, does it suffice if you cite a constitutional provision, a case, a, a formulation? Uh, and then we had another discussion, but that was only part of your test because you also, I take it, uh, assert that you, that the petitioner must set forth the factual basis for his claim, for his claim. Yes, Your Honor. So that, that's a two-part test. Uh, it, it seems to me that in some cases uh, it's going to be fairly obvious um, what the facts are, and in some cases fairly obvious what the legal standard is, d- depending. In the case that Justice Stevens puts, where he alleges just the facts that his, his lawyer was not even a lawyer and, and, and uh, indicates why it was ineffective, but doesn't cite uh, a federal provision, it seems to me any judge knows that uh, you have to have adequate assistance of counsel under the Sixth Amendment, and that in the case put by Justice Stevens, it is simply a formalistic requirement. Now, it may be that you're going to say, although it's formalistic in some cases, it's necessary to run the habeas system that we have this rule. Is, is, is the latter your position? It, well, Your Honor, we don't, yes, we don't believe that it's formalistic inasmuch as a claim uh, so described could equally describe uh, a violation of, conceivably, I suppose, state statute, but certainly a state constitution. And I think it's at the very heart of the whole notion of, of, uh, of federalism or comity as applied in habeas that this Court enforce the reality that we have state constitutions that are offering protections. Uh, we certainly enforce it with respect to people raising claims in our court. We require very specifically that they refer to a specific source of federal law before we will even decide it. Yes, sir. How does the case decided, the Fitzgerald case, which is cited in page 34 of the red brief, it was just last term, when this court said that um, the court will consider a state court decision as relying on federal grounds sufficient to support this court's jurisdiction if, under the state's decisional law, the state and the federal constitutional claim are treated identically, the content of the right is treated identically. That, that decision from just last term says you've got a claim out there and it's a constitutional claim and the federal law and state law are identical. The content of the law is identical. We will treat it as federal. That was a decision just from last term. I, I may have misunderstood uh, that interpretation, Your Honor, because I thought this was still a very much open question as to whether... This is not in the habeas context. Yes, I understand. And in the habeas context... What I read to you is is from the decision itself. The court will consider a state court decision as relying upon federal grounds sufficient to support the court's jurisdiction. That is, when the state courts have, in other cases, declared 
that they will ap- apply the same analysis in considering the state constitutional claim as the fed- federal courts would. I think in that case it was equal protection. But that the court, uh, that was critical to the courts deciding that case last term. Well, if I'm understanding it correctly, Your Honor, I would very much uh, advocate for the court not extending, I'm understanding it correctly, not extending that, uh, that uh, doctrine or view, if you will, into the habeas context. It had to the, do with jurisdiction, not with pleading. There was pled in the case of violation of federal law. There was no doubt that the person before the court was claiming a violation of federal law. What the case held was that there is jurisdiction because the, we will assume that the state court made a ruling on a question of federal law where it relies on a state law that looks to federal cases. That's quite different from the pleading question that you have before you. May I ask you what you understand to be the purpose of the exhaustion requirement? It is, Your Honor, to assure that the states have a meaningful first opportunity to consider federal attacks on their convictions. Do Do you think the hypothetical that I gave you would give a state court a meaningful opportunity to decide the federal question? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Then it would seem it would follow that the exhaustion requirement is satisfied. Yes, Your Honor. May I go back to the question of appointment of counsel? Is counsel routinely appointed uh, for state petitioners in the state courts of Oregon? Yes, Your Honor, on, by on statute. state habeas? In the post-conviction relief process, yes. Okay. Always by statute. There is one further uh, reason also I'd like to mention to the Court for not adopting a view that generally says if a state court's interpretation of a particular assertion of, 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 of a right of the federal interpretation of the same, therefore the federal claim has been presented uh, automatically. And that is that I think that represents a very transitory rule for the court to adopt inasmuch as the state interpretation of its own law could change at a given point in time and thus in a given jurisdiction uh, what was congruent ceases to be congruent. This court's interpretation of federal law could change so that again where there might have been congruencies before uh, they, they have now become incongruent uh, and Don't you think it's likely that federal judges sitting in the state would be aware of those changes? Yes, I think they would be aware of them, Your Honor. But also to come back to a point that Justice Scalia made, it, there could be also renewed and further issues as to whether there has been a change, whether they are congruent. Are you thinking of changes that are favorable to the claimant or favorable to the state? Well, I think it could go either way, Your Honor. But certainly if it's favorable to claim it, it couldn't cause any harm. It's only if you make it narrower that it would make a difference. Yes. Yes. I guess in every case where the federal habeas court uh, has some doubt whether a federal claim was raised, the federal habeas court, that is where it is not explicitly stated, the federal habeas court will have to inquire into state law to see whether it is indeed congruent with federal law. Isn't that right? Yes. That's correct. In any event, with the present state of the law within the circuits and in light of the Ninth Circuit's decision, Your Honors, we very much hope that this Court will take the opportunity in this case to both reaffirm that it is the petitioner's responsibility to set forth, to choose and to set forth his federal claim as federal, and that you will provide further guidance as to how that must occur. That Further clarification can certainly work to serve all the interests that are at stake here, a true uh, meaningful opportunity for the states to be able to uh, to have the first opportunity to decide the federal questions. Uh, it can reduce the amount of litigation that is occurring around the exhaustion issue, and I think, and, and save precious resources, and I think, Your Honors, 
that a clear further clarif- further clarification of the rule will actually serve uh, the interests of petitioners by make, bringing meritorious federal claims to, to decision more con- sooner and more consistently. What was wrong with the Ninth Circuit's position, at least with respect to the intermediate appellate court? That is, it's reviewing a decision of a court below. That court below has federal written all over it. Why isn't that a, a reasonable assumption that the that the intermediate appellate court, where there is jurisdiction as a matter of right, it's reviewing a decision. It's bound to read that decision. Actually, Your Honor, in the petition for review in Oregon, the decision of the court below is included, but that, in this case, was a summary affirmance of the of the trial court's decision. Well, you're talking about the court, the Supreme Court of Oregon. I think Justice Ginsburg was asking about the Oregon Court of Appeals. Y- yes, sir, the, that's the appeal from the trial court to the Court of Appeals. I beg your pardon, Your Honor. Well, insofar as that stage is concerned, uh, uh, the 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 uh, the papers that were submitted to the Court of Appeals did not uh, advise or tell that court that a federal question was being raised, a federal claim was being raised. There was simply a claim of, of uh, inadequate assistance of appellate counsel, but there was no indication that uh, whether that was a state claim, state law-based claim, or a federal law-based claim. And both state and federal law-based claims of inadequate assistance of appellate counsel had been had been raised in the in the in the petition at the trial stage. Do you wish to reserve the rest of your time, General Myers? I do. Thank you. Very well. Uh, Mr. Balski, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We have a narrow question of fair presentation here, and it isn't a great effort for the courts, I don't believe, in Mr. Reese's case, to go searching to find that he did fairly present. We start out by going to the PCR petition itself, which alleges the violation both under the state and federal constitution. It mentions the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments. And then when the — You're talking about the trial court, right? Yes, I am. And when — You agree you have to present the claim all the way up through the state. I do. I do. And when the trial court decides it, we go right into the Oregon clear statement rule. Oregon post-conviction is designed to let the appellate courts know the basis of those trial court rulings. So we have the clear statement rule under 138.640. Well, there were, there were two — there was a petition and an amended petition, as I recall. Correct, Correct. me if I'm wrong. You're right. And uh, the, the original petition did not recite the, the factual basis to support the claim. That was only in the amended petition. And the amended petition was not — the amended petition, I, I take it, please correct me if I'm wrong, was, was the one in which the allegation of conflict of interest and the precise reasons for it was cited. That seems to drop out of the case because then it's not uh, — th- that amended petition, which contained the factual basis, is, is not incorporated or, or cited to the uh, court of the state court of appeals. Well, with a, the way it works in PCR is the court under the pleadings decides the case based on the first amended petition. That's the one that states the legal basis of the claim under the federal and state constitution. That's the one that the judgment of the state trial court made and, and relied on. So under the clear statement rule, then, when it made its decision and cited a federal ground. Under Oregon's clear statement rule, we have a decision on federal grounds. Now, you're, you're, you refer to a clear statement rule. Is that a rule of Oregon law or a rule yes. of federal law? That is a rule of Oregon law. And what, and that, what does it, what does that, what's the case for it and what does it say? It's not a case, it's a statute. It's 138.640. It's at the state's brief in the appendix at page 4. And it reads as follows, quote, the order making final disposition of the petition shall state clearly the grounds upon which the cause was determined and whether a state or federal question or both was presented and decided. And in Mr. Reese's case, the trial court 
followed that rule and filed a memorandum of opinion that cited that its decision of the ineffectiveness claim was on federal grounds only. And then Mr. Then Mr. Reese appeals. Did, 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 did the uh, uh, order of the Oregon trial court specify the facts upon which the federal claim was no was based? No, but again, that's not before the court in the issue presented, and that issue was waived by the state in the Ninth Circuit. They abandoned any position that Mr. Reese's claim wasn't sufficiently factually based, and we're presented with the question of fair presentation, whether or not he indicated well, But it wasn't, okay? I mean, I'm in an appeals court. I have a lot to do. Right. Thousands of cases. There are judgments of all sorts below. I don't read the judgments when I have thousands of cases. I look and see what is this individual complaining about. Right. So I look to see what the arguments are that he's making that the lower court made a mistake. Now, if I was in the Supreme Court of Oregon and I thought, but I lost this, that you shouldn't have to present it in the Supreme Court of Oregon, but the rule is you do. Right. All right. Well, I'm there as a busy judge. I look at it. He makes no mention of the federal claim. Goodbye. That's the end of it. I don't look up at the federal claim. So what, what, why, how could let, we hold to the contract? There, let, let me help you there. If you will turn to the uh, page 44 of the joint appendix, what you're going to find there is the petition for review to the Oregon Supreme Court. And when you get to page 44 and 44 and 45 are across, what you see is it follows the standard form, it's in proper form, nothing more. But when you turn the page as a busy judge or scanning, as you're talking about, and you look and you say, what's it about? Is this a state case or a federal case? Look on the first page, 46, index of authorities, constitutions, only one, the federal constitution, Four constitutional amendments cited, 5th, 6th, 8th, 4th. All that tells me is that somewhere in this brief they're cited. That's the table of authorities they cite. That isn't what the argument is. So and, I'm going to look to well, see what the argument is. I'll try to turn the page. And where does judge, it say he's making the argument? You're not going to look for an argument because you're an Oregon Supreme Court judge. And under the Oregon Supreme Court rule, I'm, yeah, 9.054A small v, um, the petitioner only presents a brief argument if he wants to. It's optional. You don't put argument into a petition for review. So but you have to have your reasons why they're wrong. Yes, and in, that's where we turn to the next page, 47. Statement of legal questions presented on review. We, we see on the page across from the Federal Constitution, ineffectiveness, ineffective assistance of both trial court and appellate court counsel. The next paragraph, statement of reasons for reversal of court of appeals, Again, we see ineffective assistance of both trial court and appellate court counsel. So we're scanning it. We're busy. We're just trying to decide whether we're going to review the case. We're not deciding it on the merits. We've got a federal case. We've got a federal issue. It's presented by Mr. Reese. No, uh, I, I couldn't possibly tell from this what, uh, what the case was about other than some free-floating ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, and, that, that and, and are you saying that the Oregon rules make it optional as to whether he's going to tell me what the case is about? Yeah. What, well, whether you're going to brief it, whether you're going to present legal argument, it's optional. But under there are no facts. I mean, if you're in the federal habeas court, why aren't you just out right there for having no facts? Because the state waived that defense in this case. I'm, I, that's just but if, way. But the point I'm is, sorry. as I understand my colleague's question, if the judge sees that there are no facts set out, why doesn't the judge just say you're out of here? The judge might say that, but the judge would say that in the context of a federal question, a federal issue presented of ineffective assistance of counsel under the federal constitution. I think he would say that on the basis of Oregon procedural law, that well, you, you just haven't said anything. Well, I don't think, well, it's conjecture what they would have decided or thought. What's critical here is what was presented. The question today is what was presented versus what, what, what is the hardship for a, for a petitioner in PCR Oregon? Sure. To either say, I'm relying on section, you know, article 14 of the United States Constitution, or I'm relying on, uh, some federal case. I mean, that, that just seems a very minimal requirement. Well, what, I, what's hard about that? Well, can, I, can you answer that? I, I can answer it. 
by saying that the prisoners are pretty ignorant. Their lawyers in the state post-conviction system, bless their souls, are not the sharpest lawyers well, in you, the world. How sharp do you have to be to figure that out? Well, I'll tell you what. Let me give you the perfect example in this case. Turn to page 42 of the state's brief for its application of the rule. Here's how sharp you have to be. Now, I think if you read the cover of the brief, we see that five lawyers, including the Attorney General of Oregon, have... Are you reading from some in the... I, yes, I'm sorry. Please look at the top and then look at number 2A and read their language. Alert the state court to the federal legal source of the claim by, A, citing to the Sixth Amendment, quote, my appellate attorney violated my right to effective assistance of counsel under the Sixth Amendment. I'm sorry, you didn't pick that up. Mm. It's page 42. Go ahead. Um, if Mr. Reese followed the formula written by the Attorney General, he would fail their test because the right to ineffective assistance of appellate counsel comes under the 14th Amendment, not the 6th Amendment. But the state's Attorney Generals who are writing the test for you can't even get it right. How is a poor indigent prisoner going to know how to say the right number? I mean, <laughs> I, I think Justice O'Connor and I think it's, it's, it's common to, uh, you know, you've heard of the incorporation doctrine, which is that the 14th Amendment incorporates and applies to the states the first ten amendments, or at least portions of the first ten amendments. But so it is not inaccurate to say that uh, that it's a Sixth Amendment right, which has been applied to the states via the Fourteenth. I thought when we're talking about appellate counsel, though, the Sixth Amendment doesn't cover it because the Sixth Amendment doesn't give you the right to effective counsel on your appeal, only at trial. And the Fourteenth Amendment, equal protection and due process, are what actually cover. So if, if you're claiming ineffective assistance of appellate, not trial, appellate counsel, it is 14th Amendment. It's not 6th Amendment. You what would happen if the Oregon Constitution happened to contain the right in the same number amendment? Well, like the 6th, suppose they were both 6th Amendment, then you have to say 6th Amendment of the Federal Constitution? Well, the, the trouble here, the Or is this, is this one of the ones that uh, uh, it doesn't contain it in the Oregon Constitution, 6th Amendment? So this is one of the ones that by necessity must refer to. Well, this isn't one of those, because that's an Article One, Section 11. It doesn't. So this isn't the easy case. This but is the, the, the Court of Appeals case. thought that um, the only way in which this claim was properly pre presented was if they adopted, the Court of Appeals adopted the rule that the state court is deemed to have uh, read and understood the proceedings in the trial court. Am I, am I right about I think they said that, that formulation of the rule? I think they said that, and I don't think you have to go that far to find that Mr. Reese fairly presented his claim. Well, do you defend that as the test? It's a, do you defend no, the Ninth Circuit's I articulated don't. test? I do not defend the Ninth Circuit's test. I only defend the judgment. I only you, say to you he fairly presented the claim in this right. case. In, in your opinion, as a lawyer who I take it is involved in these things, yes. Is there really a big problem of differences among the lower circuits, uh, among the lower courts? To what extent do we have to find a rule? I take it the rule now is called fair presentation. Correct. And there are dozens of ways it could be done. And so the court is just like supposed to look at the individual circumstance, say, was it done, was it not done? Here you think it was done because the whole thing's two pages. They refer to the federal constitution in the, uh, uh, in the uh, citation of authorities, and they have no particular, et cetera. All right. Now, is there a problem or isn't there a problem among the circuits in applying this fair presentation test? Well, the, the, there are differences in the circuits. So I can't disagree. Is it, are they real differences in terms of what counts? Or well, I, I don't think they are in the sense of, although I know this Court likely views the Ninth Circuit as, quote, unquote, a liberal circuit of sorts, when you read their opinion here, they were being very conservative. They're saying Duncan versus Henry applies. Under Duncan, you must state it at every level of the proceedings. I mean, they've won. But that, that's a Ninth Circuit case, isn't it, the Duncan against Henry? Uh, yes, it is. It is. It's not a case from this Court. No, I was talking but, but about the only, they were applying your Duncan decision. But the only way in which they could sustain their judgment was to adopt this rule of uh, 
that the appellate court has the duty or is presumed to have understood what happened in the trial court. Uh, you seem to agree that your case doesn't have to turn on that proposition. The Ninth Circuit, I thought, said that the case turned on that proposition. Otherwise, it was not going to make it. And, and I just have to I can't speak for my colleagues. But the, the, the petition that you read me at the appendix, where it just cites the federal constitutional provision and then says ineffective of counsel, ineffective assistance of counsel, does not give the court any clue as to what it's supposed to do, well, other than to review a record. Well, sorry. And, 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 and I had thought the exhaustion requirement was designed to give the court some assistance in determining whether or not it show, should uh, spend more time with the case in order to review the record. And it said the counsel had a conflict of interest uh, because of marriage or something. It would have been, it would have, it would have then triggered um, a, a, a more specific review by the district court, and it just by the uh, by the state appellate court, and it just didn't have that information. Well, what the purpose of the exhaustion rule is to give them a fair opportunity to decide it. And when you're talking about petitions for review, it's a little different because it's not your brief on the merits where they're actually we deciding. We get thousands it. of cases around here. And if it just says Fifth Amendment ineffective assistance of counsel, that gives us very, very right. little help. Well, Sixth Amendment. Here, here we're talking about ineffective assistance of counsel. We're talking about it with an Oregon statute that required the Oregon court to even tell the appellate courts whether it had been decided under the state or the federal constitution. And here they said this was decided under federal. And then when he uses ineffective, I know that that's less than satisfying. But in Oregon, too, if you look in the state's brief, I think, at page uh, 4, footnote 5, what you're going to find there is Oregon's, uh, the state of Oregon's position on what an inmate means when he says ineffectiveness. There it says that in applying Article 1, Section 11 of the Oregon Constitution, quote, Oregon courts often refer to inadequate assistance of counsel instead of ineffective assistance of counsel, the term usually employed by the state and federal courts in applying the analogous provision of the federal Constitution. So as the Oregon courts are reading the pleadings, the definition we're looking at, ineffective assistance of counsel, the term usually employed by the state and federal courts. We're giving factual parts aside, which aren't with this case at this point, legal only, the Oregon courts were fairly presented with the federal question. Well, it because seems to me that argument that you're making now, that inadequate is the buzzword for a state claim, ineffective for a federal claim, is at least in tension with your argument that, that in, with respect to in, ineffective assistance of counsel, the state the content of the state standard and is identical to the federal. So these labels don't mean anything if the content is identical. So how right. well, I, all I'm, I guess I inartfully stated it. I, the position I wanted to convey, and I didn't, is that we started out with a clear federal claim. And when he used ineffective twice more in his appeals, he did nothing at all to dispel anybody of the fact that it was a federal case. It started out federal, and he had allegations under state and federal constitution. It got decided federal, and then he said ineffectiveness. He gave no indication that he was narrowing the case at all. And a good contrast is another Ninth Circuit on bond case, Peterson, because Peterson raised it just like Mr. Reese initially under both constitutions. He raised it again that way in the uh, appellate court. But when he got to his petition for review, he indicated that to the Oregon Supreme Court that he was going on the state constitution because he only said in his petition for review that this violated Article 1, Section 11 of the Oregon Constitution. That's a contrast, and much, and he, as the Ninth Circuit held, did not exhaust his state remedies because he didn't give the Oregon Supreme Court the fair opportunity because what he did was he took their eyes and led them over to the state constitution. And Mr. Reese didn't do that. Well, if you, you say that the Ninth Circuit approach to this was wrong, which, which seems to be anchored in if it's clear that the court of first instance relied on the federal ground, that stays with the case all the way up. 
you you reject that, or you say you you are asking us to affirm the judgment, not that reasoning. What is your reasoning? What is enough? Sure. My reasoning is that it's fairly presented when a state inmate clearly articulates it under the federal constitution and then continues to appeal that judgment without indicating in any way whatsoever that he's relying on anything but the federal constitution. Then I don't see how that differs from the Ninth Circuit, because because you have to start with the Court of First Instance. And you seem to be saying if the Court of First Instance relies on a federal ground that stays with the case. That, I, that's true. I agree with that portion of it. I guess maybe I, I thought you said before that you were not defending the, the Ninth Circuit's approach. I, now you tell me you are. I thought you were relying upon the statement in the, in the brief uh, to the Supreme Court that he was relying upon the, upon the federal constitution. That's correct. And I was going to ask you, if you're relying on that now, why didn't you rely on it in your brief in opposition? The question presented by the state was, does a state prisoner alert the state's highest court that he is raising a federal claim when, in that court, he neither cites a specific provision of the federal constitution nor cites at least one authority that has decided the claim on a federal basis? Why why didn't you respond to that petition by simply saying the question is not presented because, in fact, he did cite a specific provision of the Constitution. What, I did, but I didn't. I mean, we're wasting voting. our time here. If, 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 if you want us to decide whether this brief, it's, you know, contains the, the, the Sixth Amendment or not, the question we granted cert on is, does he alert it when he neither, neither cites a specific provision of the Federal Constitution nor cites at least one authority? I, I mean. I understand. What? We're just spinning our wheels. You, you said you did raise that uh, yeah, in the I, It's Where? argued I didn't in sec- go back to it. It's in Section 3. I've just three. looked at it. I, I didn't see okay. it. I didn't see it presented very clearly. Right. Anyway, what you're asking is, that's why I started at the beginning. I thought the question was, I thought what the Ninth Circuit did was cite a case called Lyons. And in Lyons, they say you do have to either cite a particular provision of the Federal Constitution or a case that's clearly a Federal case. And then they held that the brief you pointed out to me did not do that. Then they said, but anyway, that brief is good enough because in the lower courts or other courts, they had cited the federal constitution explicitly. Now, on that question, I would think they're wrong, aren't they? Because, as I started out, you can't expect judges to start going back and filing, looking through all the briefs they filed in the lower courts or the opinions below. Uh, here, that was, I thought, the question. Well, and on that question, do you, what do you want to say? Well, I guess what I want to say is this. I think if the rule that I'm — I'm not necessarily espousing a rule. I'm trying to say that my client, Mr. Reese, fairly presented. But in saying that Mr. Reese fairly presented, I don't think that our approach is going to place a great burden on the courts by any stretch, because all you have to look at is his pleading in the state court that started it, where he says Sixth and Fourteenth Amendment. Then you just look at his brief in the Court of Appeals and his petition for review, and the answer is there. And so, 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 so now you're, you're — you're, but you're — in order to win your case, you're going to have to give us a standard, and your standard is, it seems to me, that state appellate courts are bound to look at the pleadings in the lower courts. I guess — you're seeing my focus being back in the state courts, and I'm looking at federal court. I'm looking at when the petitioner files his petition and the state steps forward and says, failure to exhaust. Petitioner's counsel then has the burden of coming forward and saying, take a look at what was in the briefs and what was presented, not what was in the minds of the state courts when they looked at it. No, them. but the, but what the did exhaustion he present? rule depends upon whether or not the state appellate courts had fair notice of the claim. Yes. And that's, that's what we're trying to discuss here. That sounds — and, 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 the, and the only way you can save your case in the posture that it comes to us, as I see it, is that that state appellate court is bound to look at the pleadings in the, in the court of first instance. Well, what we have here — And that is a rule. I well, mean, you, you have, well, here's — You're going to save your judgment, we're going to have to do it with a rule. Well, and I think with the rule, here's, here's the caveat to the rule, so to speak. And it's that comedy goes both ways. In other words, we're respecting the state courts and giving them the opportunity. 
but we're also going to respect the state's court's own rules and statutes that they use when they're looking at petitions and appeals. And here we're looking at Oregon. When you look at Oregon, we turn the page to Oregon, we have the statute that I read early, earlier, the plain statement, clear statement rule. But so, that just goes to the trial court's judgment, doesn't it? Well, that goes to the, the specifying the basis of the judgment in the trial court, whether it's a state or a federal issue. And in this case, in his written opinion, he does that. But how does, how does that bear on the appeal process? And then in the appeal process, the, the, the reason you have the clear statement rule is so the appellate courts will know what the trial court well, did. You really, you really are supporting the Ninth Circuit's judgment, aren't you, the opinion, that the Supreme Court of Oregon should have looked at the trial court's decision, even though it's a court where the review is discretionary from the Court of Appeals. The, the Court of Appeals most certainly w- would have seen it, and the, the Oregon Supreme Court was on notice by his petition. I mean, the petition for review itself so you, you want ineffective assistance of counsel. You want to withdraw your, your, your assurance earlier that you are not defending the, the Ninth Circuit's basis for reaching its result, but just the result? Well, I guess, you know, I didn't think that I needed the Ninth Circuit's, and I, I must be confused now because I think I, I'm I certainly confused. I don't know well, that you I are. Think is, I, can, is, I don't I'm think sorry. you need the Ninth Circuit if you're saying the following. Let me tell you what I think you're saying, and you tell me yeah. whether I'm right. At the Court of Appeals level, we don't need the Ninth Circuit rule because the Court of Appeals uh, was reviewing a trial court judgment, including findings uh, and statement of law, and there it was, right in the statement of law referred to, federal. Number two, we don't need the Ninth Circuit rule when we get to the Oregon Supreme Court because we've got a petition, and the petition says federal refers specifically to four federal amendments, doesn't refer to any state court, any state law, or any state constitution. So you don't need the Ninth Circuit rule for that purpose. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, then you have the problem. Ninth Circuit. May I ask you another question? Is is it your view that there's a difference between a state rule on inadequate assistance of counsel and the federal rule on ineffective assistance of counsel? Well, yes, in this sense. Did you... Well, if there's a difference, would your client not have had the obligation to, to exhaust the state rule as well as the federal rule? Because that was a remedy for the basic wrong you're complaining of. I guess I didn't follow your question. Um, could I ask you to Or inadequate assistance as a matter of state law, the same as ineffective right. assistance as a matter of federal law? Well, at the trial level, trial ineffectiveness, they are different, clearly. They have a test that's called inadequate. For state council, they call it ineffective under Strickland. It's just a difference in names or a difference in substance? It's a difference in substance when you're talking about trial court ineffectiveness. In, in our case, when we I move over, now we're talking about appellate ineffectiveness. Yeah. They've got one test that was discussed during earlier questions. And what they do is they interchangeably use the words ineffective and inadequate. They don't use any one term all the time, but there's just one test. That's Oregon law. If you ask me, could you uh, uh, cite me the the portion of your brief in opposition that you think most uh, clearly presented yeah. the uh, the uh, issue that uh, sure. that you are now relying on at the Supreme Court level to wit that the federal constitution was cited in the brief to the Supreme Court? Right. Where? I think it will be in, I did it in three parts, and the third part would have been that this by is the brief in opposition, the brief in opposition oh, oh, petition oh. for cert. I'm sorry, I'm not even thinking. Once I've granted on, on this question, it's too late to tell me the question is irrelevant. I'm sorry. I, I like to know it's irrelevant before I vote to grant cert. Right. I, I, you know, I honestly don't remember what I argued at all in that brief. I haven't looked at that in preparing for this, and I apologize, but... If, can you tell, tell me, if I were to accept your position about the Ninth Circuit rule, how does it differ from what I wrote in dissent when I thought that we sh- you shouldn't have to go to the Supreme Court of the state? 
If you, if you remember, if you don't remember that. I mean, I know I mean, what's bothering me about it is it sounds like a reasonable position, but it also sounds like a position I agreed with in dissent, which means it isn't the law. The opposite is the law. Well, I don't disagree that O'Sullivan says that it's got to be presented to the highest court of the state. And my position is simply that he did so in this case. If there had been an objection preserved in the Ninth Circuit that whatever else, this doesn't tell us what the facts were, would not that have been a a ground saying you didn't exhaust. That would have been a bigger problem for me than this problem, yes, because although he said, and part of his saying was under the Oregon-Balfour procedure when he didn't have a lawyer, um, he said, my lawyer and I disagreed on what issues to raise. One thing that Mr. Reese didn't say factually was what those issues were, and that would be my problem if their position were that factually it wasn't clear enough. So, so they, they have abandoned uh, an objection, if one, one would think it would be the logical first one, it doesn't have any facts out the door. Yes, I, that's true. They did abandon it. Do we have to ignore that, too? I think you should, and I've argued in my brief that you should, because they dropped it from the case and abandoned it, and because the only issue presented is the issue of whether or not he fairly presented it. So I would espouse that. Um, whether you have to or not, or but obviously this, be your decision. But if this court is going to give any guidance, certainly that should be the, the first one, shouldn't it? Well, sure, the first so piece. And, and, and I think that is fair presentation law. You have to supply sufficient facts and the law upon which you rely. Here they didn't object to the insufficiency of facts, but the rule wouldn't be any different than it was before under Picard. If there are no more questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Balski. Uh, General Myers, you have three minutes remaining. Your Honor, so two quick comments or points. First, this case illustrates the fallacy of any kind of doctrine which says that an appellate court can tell what issues have been chosen to be asserted to it, put before it, by going back and looking at the decision of a, of a lower court. Here, the trial court in Oregon disposed of one of the federal inappellate assistance of counsel claims, citing Jones against Barnes, but it had before it state law claims of ineffective assistance of counsel as well as federal. The trial court didn't mention the state claims, but they were all dismissed as well by the judgment that was ultimately entered at the trial court level. So both state and federal claims were dismissed. You couldn't tell by looking at the trial court judgment what the uh, what the prisoner was choosing to actually assert among those dismissed claims at the Court of Appeals level. He could as well have been asserting his dismissed state ineffective assistance of counsel claims. Mice, do you have any response to the, to the new point raised? Uh, it was new to me anyway that, uh, that this, in fact, uh, the federal claim was raised? No, yes, position? I do, Your Honor. What, what is that? I'd really like to it, know that. At page 4748 of the Joint Appendix, uh, which you may have already been referring yes. to, the petition for review uh, is set forth. And if you go to the argument portion, Your Honor, uh, which is at the very second paragraph of the argument portion, I think that's going to be on page 48. Yes. You'll see the last second sentence of the second paragraph. Moreover, since petitioner asserts he was coerced and threatened by counsel to waive his right to trial by jury, petitioner believes his fifth, sixth, and fourteenth amendment rights have been, I see. Have been I see. violated. So, so the ineffective assistance of trial counsel claim was specifically federalized, if you will, uh, and that's the that's the only place where those federal citations appear. Your Honors, again, the, the state of the law in this area, we think, can fairly be described as still disturbed, the term I used earlier. And we very sincerely hope that this Court will use this case both in relation to the Ninth Circuit decision to reaffirm that it is the state petitioner, not the state courts, who have the responsibility to assert, fairly present the claim. And secondly, to go for further and, and further clarify specifically what state prisoners must do in order to clearly 
indicate the federal source of their claim. If you prevail, I hope you're not unhappy with what you get, because you're going to have petitions in which there's a huge laundry list of cases. We have to then qualify that by saying there has to be a fair and concise statement of the legal and the factual basis for the claim. Your Honor, indeed, the fact that federal or the, the federal source of the claim is used is not the end of the fair presentation issue because there's still going to be the ongoing requirement of adequately identifying your substance of your claim, to use the terminology of this Court, the, the legal theory as well as the adequacy of the fact. Thank you, General Myers. The case is submitted. We'll hear our